my great grandmother taught me how to how to use fire when I was um, four years old, and so I've been been burning all my life. You know, that's that's a big piece of who we are, of our and our cultural identity has been stripped from us, and and you see it in the mental health of our youth. You see it in, in uh, manifesting itself in in a lot of different ways. You can learn all of these principles um, in a lot of different ways, but if you don't employ them in practice, that knowledge, practice, and belief system is lost. So, you know, it's, it's more than just protecting communities for us. It's, um, it's about revitalizing our culture and, and who, who we are um, and our responsibility um, to conservation of, of this natural spaces. Hello and welcome to Life with Fire podcast. This is your host, Amanda Monti, returning after a very long break that was not really planned, but here we are two months after our last episode. Really appreciate you guys being understanding of my rather random posting schedule at this point. Uh, eventually I will figure out a way to post on a more regular, maybe bi-weekly basis, but in the meantime, we're going to continue with the program and just post as I'm able to. But yeah, thanks for putting up with me. And uh, I've got a few really good episodes for you guys coming up this month. Uh, in this episode, we're talking to Bill Tripp, a member of the Karuk tribe in Northern California. And the Karuk tribe has been featured in a lot of news stories. It's been featured pretty extensively uh, over the last few years. And I think that's a really good indication of of their communication efforts and also simply their efforts to get fire on the landscape and to welcome in news organizations and people who are interested in, in what they're doing. And it's really helped get the word out in terms of what the importance of cultural burning is and how we can further cultural burning practices uh, across the country. So I spoke with Bill. We had a great conversation. Uh, you'll definitely want to stick around. We uh, towards the end of the episode, we spoke a lot about youth engagement and cultural burning and the importance of that youth engagement, as well as a bit about Bill's background with cultural burning and some of the things that he remembers experiencing as a child and how those experiences sort of uh, ended up reflecting in his career with the Karuk Tribe, Department of Natural Resources, where he is a director of natural resources and environmental policy. Bill and I also spoke about Senate Bill 332, which eases liability for prescribed and cultural burners in the event of a escape, which is fairly rare in, um, in both prescribed fire and cultural fire, if not non-existent in cultural fire, as Bill explains in the podcast. Because we spoke back in September, the bill was still sitting on Governor Newsom's desk, but has now been passed into law. So when you're listening to that part of the episode, just remember that it has been passed into law and we will include a link to that bill so you can take a look at it and kind of get a better understanding of it in the episode's show notes. I want to give a huge shout out and a huge thank you to Bill for coming on the show, especially because we recorded this in September when fire season was still very much happening. So thanks, Bill, for coming on. And without further ado, here is Bill Tripp. I hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Um, yeah, I'm Bill Tripp. I'm the Director of Natural Resources and Environmental Policy for the Karuk Tribes Department of Natural Resources. I've been working 
um, here for the past 28 years. Um, started in water resources uh, back in 1993 and um, we had four staff people and one computer. And so um, I saved, saved up um, all the money I could to buy myself a laptop. We didn't have much of a budget, um, but um, yeah, I've uh, been, been working on program building ever since and now worked my way up to the director uh, position and had as many as you know, 75 um, personnel with, you know, employed at any given time in recent years. What was the process like when you were first starting this program? Um, what was your sort of vision for it? You know, immediately after I, I bought that laptop, um, it was, you know, about a year into my employment here. Um, I, I, my first grant I wrote was to establish um, a fuels program. And so I submitted a proposal to the BIA hazard fuels reduction program. And um, no one was really using it at the time. A lot of fire uh, programs um, were kind of focused more on the suppression side of things. Um, and a lot of the folks I had talked to um, kind of figured, oh, this is just something that's gonna go away. Um, and so, you know, I asked around, um, I said, well, why, well, why do you think it's gonna go away? And one of the comments I got back uh, from from uh, one of the people I talked to was um, was that, well, for one, $300 an acre isn't gonna get you much. Um, and so I did a little research and I noticed that, you know, that's that's what federal programs funded was $300 an acre for this stuff. And and so I said, well, you know, I guess if I'm gonna submit something, I'm gonna, I'm gonna submit for what it takes to do the job. And so, so um, you know, once doing some, some calculations, it, it ended up uh, being around $1,200 an acre that it was actually costing or would actually cost to, to make any kind of meaningful difference in a first entry. And so, you know, uh, that's what I wrote it for and, and it got funded. And so we've been, we've been building it out ever since, but you know, the, the long-term vision for that program has always been, um, you know, to bring fire back to the people um, and be able to um, re revitalize our indigenous uh, knowledge practice and, and belief systems around the use of fire. Absolutely. Can you tell me a bit about your sort of personal history with fire? Um, did you, did you grow up on Karuk tribal lands? Yeah, I grew up in my ancestral village of Wunkarak on the lower Salmon River um, in California. And, um, and so, yeah, I, um, my great grandmother taught me how to, how to use fire when I was um, four years old. And, um, so I've been, been burning all my life. That's incredible. That was going to be my next question was who taught you. And I, I love hearing those stories of the generational knowledge. And I would love to know, you know, this is maybe a big question, but um, in what ways do those teachings sort of differ from the predominant sort of colonial mindset that we're dealing with now or the ways that we, in the ways that we talk about or think about fire? That's a really big question. So you can take it however you'd like, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of differences, you know, people don't, um, people have a hard time perceiving something they haven't been exposed to. And so, 
you know, when it comes to prescribed fire, you know, I like to differentiate between prescribed fire and cultural burning because there are these differences. People see fire suppression. And so, um, the, you know, the, the greater um, societal perception of, of uh, what, what a prescribed fire needs to be aligns with how fires are suppressed, <laughs> you know, and that, that's not necessarily, um, you know, the best way to do it in my mind, um, you know, cultural burning doesn't necessarily, you know, I never scratched a fire line when I was a kid. I never had a, um, I, you know, I rarely had water, um, didn't have fire engines. I didn't have any of these things, but I could go out there and I could burn, um, you know, a good portion of the most volatile uh, fuels, uh, surface fuels off when, um, you know, during during times of year when things were wet and, um, you know, only the, the driest of dry places were burned. And so, you know, there are some some um, significant differences between cultural burning and, and prescribed fire. Um, but, you know, in order to get to the point of even being able to employ fire in our contemporary fire management systems, you know, we ended up having to, um, to build programs where everyone had those qualifications um, that are in the suppression system. Now, we knew that was a mistake to start with because one, it takes too long to get those, those, those um, qualifications. And, um, and, and two, um, you know, you have to engage in the suppression um, action to even get those qualifications, um, you know, which then exposes people to, you know, massive amounts of overtime and, you know, and, and becomes a, a dependency um, to have a livelihood when you enter that profession. And so, um, so that those types of things reinforce the suppression paradigm. And, and um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can start getting to a place to where we can be offering more um, overtime for prescribed burning, um, building in more cultural objectives into prescribed burning activities. And, um, and then, you know, starting to transition to um, and expand upon um, areas where, where culture burning is, is already happening um, to, to maintain, um, you know, fire and our community resiliency um, for the long term. That's fantastic. And kind of bringing it back to like how you kind of got started, just, I think this is, a, this is a really good example of, of, of this really working well, I think in terms of, um, I know, I know there's probably always more work that can be done, but you guys have done a really great job of, of getting the word out of, of putting more fire in the landscape of collaborating with local agencies and, and organizations. Um, I'm curious what that process looked like at the beginning, like if there was sort of that interagency collaborator support for what you were doing. I know you got some funding from the Forest Service, it sounded like, um, but what was that support system like when you first started, or was it really just kind of you and other members of the tribe just kind of pushing forward? Well, it really, um, you know, was a grassroots effort, you know, I mean, um, you know, back in the mid 90s, you know, we uh, when when um, when I got that first uh, 
first funding uh, for the fuels reduction projects, um, we did a thing called the T-bar demonstration project, um, which we were saying that we needed to scale up um, into a minimum of 10,000 acres um, and be looking at pretty large um, areas of forest if we're going to actually affect change um, in these systems. And so um, we ended up um, doing a few, uh, some, you know, working on some demonstrations and that was an inter interagency effort. Uh, we had, um, you know, funding from the BIA. Uh, we had, um, we did uh, consultation under the uh, executive order 13175 with the Forest Service. And we, um, and we, you know, started talking about how we can demonstrate this. And, and we didn't, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of work, but we did, you know, we did good work. Um, and, and we, we, we uh, tested the partnerships and we established agreement structures and we did that kind of, of thing to enable a better interagency coordination. Um, you know, staffing changes in the agency, you know, ended up demonstrating that relationships are everything. And then when the person you have a good relationship um, with moves on, doesn't necessarily mean that the next person that comes in is gonna believe in what you're doing. And they have a significant amount of power if they're in a leadership position to uh, make things just stop happening. Um, and so, um, you know, so when, when, when we ended up experiencing some of, of that, uh, we, we um, you know, we really started building it from the community scale out. And, and so um, I've been working with a, a fellow named uh, Will Harling uh, for a better part of you know, a few decades here. He helped us to, um, you know, put out our, our uh, Klamath Basin, uh, San Juanid, um, um restoration plan back in the, the mid nineties and, and, um, and part of that uh, called for uh, establishing some um, watershed groups um, to, to help, help to uh, figure out, um, you know, to help to push these things from the NGO arena. And so um, he um, started uh, the Mid-Climate Watershed Council uh, fresh out of college, and um, and and they've been been our ally in this discussion ever since. Um, and and so you know, early on, we did a lot of a lot of the actual burning on private property, um, and we've continued to, to. I mean, we do most of our burning on private property, uh, but but you know, private property is on is less than two percent of this landscape, and so. Um, you know, we've had had a lot of starts and stops, um, and it wasn't until you know about 2000, um, 2007 um, or so when we you know started to expand out into greater collaborations like the Cutter QC Berkeley collaboration, and then we had a uh, collaboration going on with a whole lot of um, NGOs and you know. Um, fire organizations and and the fish type organizations um, and um, you know we 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 moved along really well uh, when it came to fish restoration um, a lot of people were agreeing 
on what we should do. And so we were moving forward with that, uh, but our whole collaboration, our collaborative process was jeopardized because we couldn't reach any kind of zone of agreement on, on, um, on how to um, deal with upslope management issues, primarily timber um, and, and uh, wildfire management and prescribed fire. And, um, and so, you know, we were about to, to we, were, we were at gridlock in 2012, um, but we ended up, um, you know, we almost disbanded um, the upslope working group because uh, we split into two, an in-stream working group and an upslope working group. And we were about to the point of disbanding that work group and the upslope work group in, in 2012. Uh, when we got some professional facilitation assistance from the Nature Conservancy Fire, Fire Learning Network. And so um, we had two amazing individuals, uh, Lynn Decker and, um, and Mary Huffman come and facilitate our, our group meetings. And, um, and so that culminated in, in a, um, you know, in the, the Western Klamath Restoration Partnership and the plan, um, our plan for how we're gonna work together we got published in 2014. Um, you know, we um, learned of of an opportunity uh, to get some funding uh, from um, from the National Office of the Forest Service, and so we we reached out uh, to the Super Forest Supervisor on the Klamath National Forest and and um, to see if we wanted uh, if they were ready to wanted to work with us on a collaborative proposal. And we never got a response. Um, so we kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Um, but then um, ultimately it ended up being the, um, the district ranger um, on the um, Orleans Yukonom district, uh, district and Mullen Colgrove um, ended up giving us a call and said, hey, let's put a proposal together. We had about two days to make this deadline. <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, we all dropped everything and went and wrote a proposal and we ended up with an interagency agreement um, to um, collaboratively plan uh, the Sonspar Integrated Wildland Fire Management Project, which we're, we're well on our way of implementing right now. Awesome. And I think you guys are like, you guys are a really good example. Your tribe is a really good example of this, of this really working. And I'm curious if you have any suggestions, um, maybe for other tribes that are just at the beginning process of kind of empowering themselves or getting the, getting themselves to the table in terms of having these conversations and getting this interagency support and, um, establishing or facilitating this, this cultural burning. You know, it, 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 you can do a lot just with the consultation process. Um, but if you, you know, sometimes, sometimes the greater community doesn't necessarily um, understand how to, how to hear the tribal perspective. And so, you know, when, when you got people pushing back against um, what you're trying to say, it, it doesn't necessarily work out very well for you. Um, you know, that line officer at the agency is still going to, you know, be looking at the 
the you know the majority and and what their professional credit is going to look like in the end of this conversation and so so um you know that's part of the reason why we really uh, highlighted the need to establish uh, some non-tribal allies and you know we didn't necessarily need the non-tribal allies when the relationships were good uh, but when they were bad we did and so um and and they've um they've ended up being one of the, the you know you know our strongest ally um the community organization is still here um where you know the staff in the community organization is still here, whereas the staff in the Forest Service has had multiple turnover um, events throughout the time. And so, in order to have long-term stable relationships, I think it's it's best when you can have multiple um, uh, partners uh, coming together um, under a set of shared values, and um, and you know in a zone of agreement on what you, you know, agree to work on together. Um, now that said, you know, that tribal um, government to government relationship um, is, is a very uh, strong uh, part of, of, uh, of that um, because you can bring in um, non-tribal partners into the, into the conversation and manage um, for example, a project under an interagency agreement that doesn't require um, doesn't require cost share. Whereas, if the non-governmental organization was putting in a proposal, you'd have to have a fifty percent match, and so, or some some sources are twenty five percent match, or or whatever. And so, there are mechanisms that um, that you know enable waiver. Of those types of, of um, you know, match requirements, um, which which can be a, a big benefit starting up, you know. I mean, once you get going and you got money flowing and you got projects happening, um, you know, eventually you get to a point to where you know, you've got a good mix of, of federal and, and state and private uh, sources um, that are um that are flowing and, and at that point you you know your workload gets too big for any one organization anyways and so you know you can you can help each other achieve uh, that match requirement when it's needed just a quick note for everybody that this is the part of the episode where we start talking about sb332 which as i said before has been signed into law at this point so just something to consider as you listen to this next part of the episode yeah, so um, SB three thirty two is is on the it has been sent to the governor's desk, um, I, but I do not believe it's been signed yet either. Um, I'm really hoping it it is um, because it um, you know it'll help you know a lot of people um, are scared to come out in the open, especially on the cultural burning side. You know what what so so because. Um, you know, if a person's you know, calling in and saying, hey, we're going to be doing some burning, then, you know, next thing you know, there's, um, you know, if something goes wrong, then there's, oh, well, so-and-so called in, or they did this, or they did that, and uh, so now we're going to 
you know, give them a great big giant bill for suppression, um, you know, for a bunch of people coming to, to put, put a fire out, right? Well, you know, escapes are pretty rare um, as it is. Escape prescribed fires are pretty rare. Um, I haven't really ever heard of an escape cultural burn in my lifetime. The, um, the thing that SB332 does is it, um, is it provides uh, gross negligence protections um, against you know, being charged for, for a, a, um, suppression if something goes wrong. And so it's the type of authority that provides an incentive uh, for folks um, in the way of um, you know, not risking everything they've ever had or ever will have. Um, in, in working to get ahead of this problem we face with fire, um, with too much fuels being built up, with um, not having available you know, access to food, fiber, and additional resources for indigenous communities. Um, and so you know, that bill started out um, uh, just being uh, relevant to burn bosses. Um, but you know that doesn't necessarily um, provide for any kind of equitable inclusion of indigenous uh, you know, cultural fire practitioners, um, and it just leaves those folks that segment of our society that's you know, very small, little known out, that's out there in the world. Um, it just it, it perpetuates um, exclusion of those folks from from being able to do um, you know what they believe is is their their ancestral uh, responsibility. And so, um, so yeah, we're really hoping that, that, um, that the governor signs this. It, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't, you know, take away anyone's right to bring civil suit against someone if, if um, you know, fire gets away and burns their house down, um, things like that, it, it doesn't necessarily do. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I can't imagine anybody that would not want to try to figure out how to, to help replace someone's house if they went out and started a fire and burnt, burnt it, that burned down someone's home. I mean, it, it's, um, and, you know, and we're hoping that, that um, you know, by having this, this law in place, you know, that will, you know, enable, um, enable people to buy some insurance for the, you know, the low probability that, um, you know, that, that something like that does happen. That way they can, because right now as an individual person, whether it be a burn boss or, or a cultural fire practitioner, um, you, know, you, can't, you can't buy an insurance policy um, uh, for anything like that. So, um, so we're hoping some, some of those things will, will also uh, come into play. Um, you know, and that said, there is another, um, another action that's um, been built into the, the budget this year in California um, that, that I believe that that's also waiting signature for the, from the governor is, um, is a $20 million set aside for a prescribed fire um, liability fund. Um, and so there are a couple of, um, you know, 
you know, a couple other pieces that help tie tie components of, of that together, you know, and another one is AB6642. Um, and so, you know, we're hoping that, you know, all of these things will be signed, but, but you know, um, at a minimum, we're hoping at least something that it helps to increase our, our um, you know, our ability to get this, this work done um, happens. And you've committed almost 30 years of your life to this, uh, to cultural burning and to, to facilitating more cultural burning. And for the folks that maybe don't have uh, the background or don't, don't have the, the context for the importance of cultural burning, if you could just explain kind of what contributed to you wanting to, to commit yourself to this. Yeah, well, I mean, I just uh, growing up in my, you know, my ancestral village and, you know, it's, um, you know, when I was young, you know, we, we were still, you know, about a, as close to a traditional lifestyle as you can get, you know, um, you know having to move into the, the work environment and work in an office and all these kind of things start to pull you away from that. But, but growing up, you know, and, and going and, and um, you know, attending oral renewal ceremonies and just uh, learning from, from my elders and all about all of the things that we did before and, and why, um, you know, that's, that's a big piece of who we are, of our, and our cultural identity has been stripped from us. And, and you see it in the mental health of our youth, you see it in, in, uh, manifesting itself in, in a lot of different ways. You know, we, um, we started to build some culturally relevant uh, curriculum around climate change and fire management and cultural burning and different things like that and incorporated some of our, our creation stories and uh, some of the uh, indigenous foundational principles that we've always through history been taught as youth um, into curriculum in the schools and things like that. And so, you know, you can learn all of these principles um, in a lot of different ways, but if you don't employ them in practice, that knowledge, practice and belief system is lost. And so, um, so we're barely holding on um, to the pieces that we have, um, you know, at least we still have all our puzzle pieces. Um, we just need to put them back together. You know, if we wait a couple more decades, we might be missing some of the most critical pieces. And so, um, so you know, it's, it's more than just protecting communities for us. It's, um, it's about revitalizing our culture and, and who, you know, and our, who we are um, and our responsibility um, to, to the, the, you know, conservation of, of this natural spaces. Um, you know, a lot of times people get mixed up between natural and anthropogenic activity, um, but, you know, indigenous means natural to place. And so, uh, people have been part of these natural processes for millennia, and that's just another another thing that people people overlook in our society today. You know, and so there's you know there's a lot of things that um, you know, like my great grandmother walked uh, walked ten miles a day for thirty years of her life, just picking up um, 
the wood that she could break um, break apart and, and uh, put into um, a, a burden basket um, just you know so we could have so there could be um, heating and cooking firewood um, you know in the village uh, there was no chainsaws nothing like that um, you know but 10 miles a day that's a lot of ground to cover breaking the sticks that's you know, and branches and, and, you know, larger, larger chunks of wood um, out there that, um, that, you know, would be generated uh, by any burning activity or even wildfires. And so, so, um, you know, there's a combination of actions that we need to bring back. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have a lot more youth learning how to um, how to make baskets, and um, and we're actually starting to get to a point to where we're getting small amounts of um, you know basket materials burned. Um, you know, it's it's not enough for for you know every weaver to have everything they've always wanted, um, but you know we're we're able to you know get get um, get enough out there to uh, so some of these weavers can can teach the next generation um, but you know we're really striving for them to have um, all they need and more and have you guys tried to encourage that connection between the youth like have you been able to to get youth on the ground and helping out with some of these burns is that something that's uh, kind of part of your program yeah, we do the Klamath uh, River uh, Prescribed Fire Training Exchange every year. Um, and so youth engagement has always been a key um, activity. Um, I know that last, you know, during COVID, it hasn't necessarily been um, a big event, uh, but this year we're, we're, we are planning a, a larger event again um, and actually but spreading it out over a seven week period instead of just a two week period. And so, you know, some youth engagement is, is gonna be be part of that again. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, we had this um, nature journaling um, uh, activity um, that, uh, that we, we did with, with some folks came in and, um, you know, a whole group of folks came and, and did some, some nature journaling. And so we were able to tie in the youth with that aspect of it um, so they can look at it more from the perspective of an artistic um, activity. And um, that went over really well, um, you know, and, and we've also engaged the youth in, other, in the previous years as part of the, um, the FEMO group. Um, which is uh, evaluates the um, you know the fire behavior and, and the outcomes of of the burns um, and do does all those little the scientific measurements for for uh, determining all, all of that and um, and they the kids really enjoyed that you know we've we've had you know events where where we would go and gather um, acorns post fire. Um, and teach teach kids about you know bugs and um, and uh, molds and all that kind of thing that happens in those types of food sources 
and how that relates to the, the burning activity. Um, and, and just, you know, every year it's a little bit different. Um, we always bring a basket weaver in to display the types of materials that benefit um, and, and bring that to the whole group. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's uh, be interesting to see what develops uh, this year for, for youth engagement. Totally. And, and I'm curious, kind of like what, what parts of your own childhood or parts of your own, like sort of learning about cultural fire, would you like to be reflected to uh, modern, like the kids in your, in your tribe now? Well, um, you know, I, it's the, the preservation of our stories um, is, is important. You know, um, I wish I could remember all of the stories that I was told as a kid, um, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I remember bits and pieces, but I can't sit down and tell that whole story. And, 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 um, you know, the whole story is important. <laughs> and so, you know, a preservation and, and, uh, of, of those stories and, and to, um, to be able to tell those stories to our youth is, is critical. Um, I remember I, I'll be out doing some some burning and or, or just different things in life and I'll notice something, you know, and I'll be, oh, that's what that story meant. You know what I mean? It, it's um, um, just small things, you know, like um, understanding, you know, about, you know, the bumblebee and and um, and the burn timing for in a, in a black oak woodland um, in the spring. You know, it's it's. Um, Things you may not think you're learning um, at the time, uh, but, but but you are, and so it's um, that one is is really critical in my mind, um, and and as far as um, as our world renewal ceremonies go, you know I think that, that making sure that we keep exposing our youth and and our adults to to those ceremonial practices. Um, and being able to revitalize the burning pieces of that um, is is critical um, because um, you know each one of those regalia species has a relationship with fire uh, just like we do and um, and there's a lot to be learned there that's fantastic my last question um, is just kind of what you feel is sort of being missed in the conversation about indigenous burning or indigenous land management in general. Uh, there's been a ton of press about this, especially with your tribe, but just curious kind of if you have anything that's been missed or anything that might be misperceived. Well, um, we had an incident um, this, this uh, during this, um, a cash fire uh, that's burning out here in, in the, um, in Cudic territory right now. And, you know, we had a person, and I'm not necessarily gonna call out a name, but it was a person that was, um, you know, higher up in the chain of command um, in the Forest Service, um, you know, that was, you know, came to talk to us about things, um, about the ongoing management of the incident and, and all of these these things and um, and we had a, a ceremonial leader um, who was a Forest Service employee um, 
engaged in the conversation around one of our sacred places. And so his his recommendation, you know, was that if if the um, fire uh, crossed their, the um, control lines, that uh, that we go out and we we burn off of our ceremonial trail along a, a, a ridge um, where our ceremonies are conducted annually. And this individual went back to his his um, office and then and, and called this guy's supervisor who's on another forest unit and and he told him that he thought he was an arsonist and it's like you know i mean people perceive that i mean i i just makes you wonder you know what's going on in the mind of a person like that um, but but you know there's a lot of that that goes on in this world and 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 um, I'm hoping that that type of behavior can change. Um, you know it's it, it was really upsetting. You know and and so you know that said you know all this whole conversation was was about um, was about the way fires managed on national forest system lands. And, um, and so, you know, one of the things that I think is one of the most um, misunderstood aspects in this conversation is the term tribal lands. You know, everyone says it, um, everyone, you know, asks about things happening on tribal lands. Um, and, and um, you know, most people today, um, see parcels of land <laughs> have legal definitions and all of this um, and they perceive tribal lands as being lands held in trust for the tribe you know by the u.s government um, but you know the Karuk tribe is is a a nation um, you know tribes are are independent nations um, you know the the um, you know so just as the United States has a constitution, um, you know the state of California has a constitution, the Cutter Tribe has a constitution as well, and within that constitution it has a definition for Cutter Tribal lands, and it it applies the jurisdiction to that area that is considered Cutter Tribal lands, and and um, you know. That definition includes those parcels um, that people talk about. Um, it includes, you know, lands that are owned by the tribe as well that are in fee uh, status, just like any other private property. But it also includes our Aboriginal territory, which is uh, over a million acres, um, and is, um, you know, which 98% of that is considered national forest. And so I, I just, I don't think a lot of people are really grasping on to the idea just yet um, that um, that's just because something is a national forest or a, or a national park or a state park or whatever, that that isn't in the indigenous territory of a tribe um, who has, um, you know, who has, you know, 
interest, beneficial interest in, in, in things that go on um, in, that, in that area, if not an established jurisdiction um, that overlaps uh, with the agency. Um, you know, it's exciting to see all of this um, discussion changing in the state to include cultural burning um, in, into that conversation and, and um, in a way that actually looks like it's going to lead to action. Um, and and um, the same on the federal side, uh, the conversations that are going on there at least appear like they, they may go towards, um, toward in that direction as well. Um, but, but one of the things that's um, really happening like right now um, is, is the private uh, philanthropy sector. Um, you know, we never really worked really closely in, in with the philanthropy sector um, historically, at least not here at the Department of Natural Resources. But we, um, a, a few years ago, decided to start a, um, a fund that we call the Endowment for Ecocultural Revitalization Fund. Um, at the Humboldt Area Foundation, and um, and so you know, in working with the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network um, and um, establishing a, a greater landscape um, and collaborative partnership among the Karuki Rock and Hoopa people um, um, across the territories of of those three tribes. Um, you know, an anonymous donor, um, you know, brought in $500,000 and donated it to the Humboldt Area Foundation uh, to progress those cultural burning efforts. And so, so it's just really exciting to see that kind of, a, or to get that kind of a phone call and, and uh, say, well, this person wants to help. What do you, what, uh, uh, what should we do? And, um, and so it's it's going to be exciting to see how that that type of relationships develops uh, into the future, um, because the more we can bring um, non-federal and uh, non-state or basically non-tax dollars into into this equation, um, the more we can can do things, um, you know, just as family-based activities or as um, or as uh, you know tribally sponsored, you know, assistance to help make sure that cultural burners can do uh, what they need to do. Um, and uh, may, maybe even be able to buy people's insurance policies for them. You know what I mean? And so um, it's that kind of thing that really, really excites me. All right, folks, that's what we've got for you today. Thanks for listening, and thanks once again to Bill Tripp for coming on the show. And if you guys like this podcast or if you know somebody who might enjoy it, please pass it along, um, share it. And if you're able to, maybe subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave us a review if you feel so inclined. We love the reviews because it helps with the algorithm and it also just helps get the podcast in front of more folks who might be interested in putting more fire on the landscape and uh, more effectively living with fire. So thanks again for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed and we'll catch you on the next one.